Hey guys, Jack here yet again with the week's announcements. Sorry for the background noise, I'm recording at Starbucks, uh, although they have a surprisingly awesome playlist going on today. Anyways, the new membership program is going strong with more members of the Slack group, our members-only poker forum. Uh, we've begun tweeting a Slack post of the day, so if you follow us on Twitter at JustHandsPoker, you can get an idea of topics covered in the forum. And with the holidays quickly approaching, consider treating yourself or a loved one to a Just Hands Poker membership. Remember, you can sign up to our basic membership or our tag membership for two months free the rest of 2016 using coupon code JustHands1YR. For more details, head to JustHandsPoker.com membership. One other announcement, mainly to our younger audience, we are searching for some interns for paid and unpaid internship positions. For more information about the internship opportunities, follow the link in the show notes. All right, thanks again, and enjoy the episode. Hey, Zach. Hello, Jack. How you doing, man? Doing good on this fine fine day right before Thanksgiving. How about yourself? I'm doing well. I don't know if I would call it a fine day. Uh, sort of the beginning of winter, which happens to be a, about half the year here in Ohio. But, uh, but, but we get to, to record a podcast. Poker. Yeah, yeah. Always a redeeming quality at this this time of the week. And this week, it's not just us, but we have Dr. Trisha Cardner of the Mindset Advantage podcast and Elite Mental Game Coach. How are you doing today? Hey, guys. I'm happy to be here with you. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, so do you have a hand for us? Oh, my goodness. I brought a hand, and I'm thinking that you will find it interesting, maybe not so much from my side, although I think my side was a little bit interesting, but my opponent's side and kind of what he was thinking, I, I think is uh, pretty interesting. So this is a game where we are playing 5-10, and there was a straddle to $20, and then under the gun plus one, who's my opponent, makes it $70. And I'm sitting over in the hijack. And do you want me to tell you what my hand is, or do you guys want to guess? Oh, <laughs> uh, I don't. We've, we've got to think about this because we've never done this before. Let's uh, let, let, let's wait. Let's wait. Let's let's try. Yeah, to let's guess. just yeah. Let's go blind on both. both sides. So, so so just before we continue, though, what are the effective stacks, and how how many people are at this table or playing currently? Okay, it's full ring, so it's nine-handed table. They stacks, if there was not a straddle, were about 300 big blinds effective, but with the straddle, it cuts it to about 140 big blinds. So my opponent has 2,100 in his stack, and I have 2,900. Okay, and would you say 70 is within the realm of a standard race size for this villain? Yes. Oh. Yes, yes, I would. Um, I think he might have went to um, even a little bit lower, you know, maybe like a standard 3X had there not been the straddle, but he went just a tad higher because of the straddle. But this was very standard for this particular table and this particular opponent. Okay. Uh, I will say that uh, on this table, there were out of the nine, I would say three that I would classify as weaker spots and then everybody else I would classify as competent plus and this villain is definitely um a competent mostly competent I would say there's a couple spots I think he could work on but that's just my opinion um but uh but he's a good player in general is 
do you think he's a professional? Uh, he does play for a living, but he play. These are higher stakes than he normally plays, so he's mostly a one-two and two-five guy. Okay, so since we're doing both of you guys, you know, without knowing your hands, how do you perceive his play typically, and how do you think he perceives your play uh, in terms mm. of his decision making? Good question. I think both of us are pretty solid pre-flop players. Uh, I think he probably views me as a little tighter than what I actually am. Uh, And he is, I perceive him to be, um, he's not overly tight, but he's definitely not overly aggressive um, or or loose, I guess I should say, particularly uh, given the fact that he was in early position in this particular hand. So I know his ranges are not you know, super wide. But having said that, he's not, you know, just playing like the top 2% of hands or anything like that. Right. Okay. Okay. So I call his $70 and then everybody else ends up folding and we go heads up. Okay. Can we recap where you guys are sitting real quickly? So he was under the gun plus one. Mm -hmm. And I was in the hijack. Okay. And do you, because we're going to, kind of be figuring out not what you should do with your exact hand, but mm-hmm. what you should be doing with uh, your range because we don't know. Uh, mm-hmm. Do you remember a little bit about like the button and the blinds here? Uh, I felt just because of the way everything that had played out that if uh, that I could call there and I wouldn't get a significant number of calls behind. Um, I felt like my call to the table actually looked pretty strong and that if they did anything behind me, then I would make an assessment from there, if that makes sense. Yeah. Do, so, so more specifically, do you think that the blinds or the button uh, is capable of three betting light in this spot, given the action? Well, uh, that's a very interesting question because the button... Uh, I have played quite a lot of hands with, and he had shown a propensity to not take good squeeze spots or spots, you know, that could be perceived as good squeeze spots. So I had um, a number of times where I had played with him where he definitely could have taken a squeeze and he did not. Okay. Are you ready for me to hit you with this exciting flop? <laughs> sure. uh, well, oh, so, <laughs> all right, let's do it. Yeah. Okay, ready? Okay, so the flop comes, and it's queen of clubs, five of clubs, eight of spades. And my opponent checks to me. Okay, so let's take a second and think about uh, what this player's range is going to look like. Uh, I think given your flat call on the hijack, he's probably expecting you to have, you know a somewhat stronger range, but probably not have any of your premiums. I think he would assume you would three bet those and he's probably correct. So when he's checking here, I think he has, he's likely checking hands like nines through jacks, lower pocket pairs that aren't a set. Do you think he would be checking a hand like ace king or ace jack? Well, you know, that's an interesting question. I don't see why he would check those hands. Like, why wouldn't he just go ahead and continue with those those hands, keep them in his continuing range? Uh, so, yes, I, I do think that he would see bet, hit, like, his ace-king type hands. 
from like a frequency perspective, do you think this player is likely to be over CBET bluffing, under CBET bluffing? Is he likely somewhat balanced in his in his checking range? Hmm. Well, that's an interesting question too. Um, I think that when you're going to see how this hand plays out, I think that's going to be kind of telling. It's going to give you the answer to which you are seeking, perhaps. He's very good pre-flop, but then post-flop is where he can make some errors. Okay. <laughs> are those errors generally, are they just a sort of a collage of errors, or is it generally being too tight, being too loose, uh, you know, over-bluffing, under-bluffing, over-calling? Well, I think sometimes he gets, like, he'll be in a spot where perhaps a check call would be the right thing, and he'll check raise as an example. And I've okay. seen him do that like a couple of times in this particular session to where I thought, Hmm, that's very interesting. I wonder, you know, what is motivating him on that? Uh, it's almost like he feels like he, or at least I perceive him this way. Okay. He may not be this way at all, but I perceive him to be uh, like more prone to betting and when he doesn't a lot of times when he's checking it looks like he is going uh for check raises more often than not hmm. okay. okay so you these hands you're saying that he shouldn't be check raising are they like top pair type hands middle pair type hands uh both neither uh so a lot of times it's like middle pair type hands hmm. okay so, so this is there's kind of two ways to to approach this. There's one where it's like, okay, we shouldn't be betting a lot because he check raises too wide, and then there's kind of another view, which is a little more high variance, but I think a lot more profitable. Is that, well, you uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Trisha, but in in this game, would you say you have like a relatively tight image and like a a good image at this point? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, so so I would say there's like we should be betting intending on three betting the flop a lot wider with our with bluffs and with a much bigger a much higher ratio of bluffs to value bets than we might otherwise against another opponent uh because this villain even if he's going to spaz out with middle pair check raising he's not going to just get it in if you three bet the flop right so what ends up happening, uh, and then we'll go back to that. So he checks, I bet 135 into 175, and he obliges with a raise to 425. Okay. So before we know your hand, I guess, Jack, let me know what you think about this. But my, my thought is that, you know, any hand we were bluffing with on the flop when check two, we should be three bet bluffing given how wide this person's check-raising range is, assuming that this person's not just blasting off and getting it in with middle pair, which sounds like a reasonable assumption if this is like a professional who's playing higher higher stakes. The I, I agree with you, Zach. I think the one sort of wrench in that plan is the stack size. It's a really kind of awkward stack size for us. So the effective stack preflap was 2,100. We have a raise to 400 and something, I think is what, 425 mm. is what you said. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we're kind of in like a collar jam here. I mean, we could fold depending on what we have. We might have some stuff that wants to fold. But 
I like raising, but I would like raising a lot more if we had 1300 behind, you know, than having about 2000 behind. Yeah, I think if we're raising here, it's either raising all in or raising like a smallish size that we could comfortably fold to a four bet. Well, what happens, boys, is that I jam all in and then he tanks for a very long time. Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> So if I'm if I were him and I just listened to the conversation we just had, I'm calling with Jax here for sure. But if I hadn't just listened to our conversation, <laughs> uh, well, first of all, I would have never, Check I would have never yeah. gotten to this point. But if if you just if I had to consult this person now, I would advise him to call, because I think that you would be tempted to hang him out to dry and also take a slightly lower variance line with a hand like Ace Queen, let's say, maybe not. But I think that you're likely to, based on what your read is of this player, to be unbalanced towards bluffs based on the bet size. So it, it's I'm going to have to take a second to sort of think about what I would be holding here when I check-raised you and what I would do with those holdings. But wait, Jack, I, I don't know if that makes sense to do because you're never going to be check-raising this super wide middling hand range, you know? So you're not... No, right, I'm saying if, I, if I'm sitting here and I'm... Yeah, I guess... It's but sort of an impossible. It's sort of yeah. I see what you're saying now. Yeah. Yeah. You can't use so. That. What I was going to say is just for a second, looking at it the other way, in Trisha's spot because we're going to know her cards. Does it make sense here? What value hands does it make sense to shove here with? Because if if we if we know that our opponent is raising super wide and really likely to fold, you know, a bad top pair, middle pair type hand for this shove, what type? Does it make sense to be shoving all of our value hands? Probably not. You know, maybe some more vulnerable hands, like maybe like a a king queen or an ace queen for some thin value. But I think I'm probably just calling with a with a hand like a set. Yeah, no, that's that's sort of what I'm saying. Like I I don't think I'm personally unless unless I could ever be holding queens here. And the the reason I would say queens, if you if you decide not to three bet queens, you know, that's a hand where you know if he has one of his strongest draws or if we have overset it him, then we just want to get it in now. And also the fact that we're blocking Queen so heavily and we've experienced this action. I'm not worried as worried about like, you know, blowing him off sort of a weird top pair hand. Well, I'm worried about blowing him off like a middle pair type hand is what I'm saying. You know, like if, if Trisha said she, she's observed him do this type of play, with like middle pair and bottom pair when he check raises here just combinatorically he's gonna have you know a lot more middle pair well here's something important trisha when he's Mm -hmm. check raising really wide here is he ever doing it with certain bluffs or is it mainly just like value hands and like bad made hands well, I think he can definitely be bluffing here, and particularly because we had had a hand uh, prior to this where I got three streets of value from him with a top pair hand, and he had like a medium pair hand. So I think he still like could be thinking about that as well, which could lend him to having some more bluffs here. Mm-hmm. 
and the type of bluffs that couldn't call an all in, right? Mm-hmm. Like I can, I feel like, well, you don't know the hand, so that's why you're probably like, hmm, like what's going on here? But well, I feel like there's certain hands it, that could be in my range where if I do shove here and if I get rid of him, it's good. And if I don't get rid of him, it's good. Or, you know, could be good. Yeah, me and Jack are just trying to think, you know, like what is the, what is kind of the exploitative, mm-hmm. most exploitative play we could make here? Like, should we be over bluffing, over three-bet jam bluffing on this board? Should we, mm-hmm. you know, be three-bet jamming for some thin value if he's just going to, like, check-raise with middle pair and station it off? Right. My... my, my Based on the description of the player and what you've said so far, my my take is that we should be really over three bet bluffing here. You you seem to have a good tight image. You have him covered. He's playing higher stakes than he's used to, and even if he's spazzing a little bit with a check raise, I think it's much more likely for like a professional to spaz out in an aggressive way than in like a really stationy calling mm-hmm. off. You know, normally like a hundred fifty bigs for him. Or, or 200 if he started the hand with 2100. So my, my thought is that we should be over bluffing and definitely slow playing a lot more than we would against most opponents. Being in position and having just such a range advantage when we have top pair plus. Thoughts, Jack? Yeah, my thoughts, I, I agree that I think it's very likely that if this player was check raising a middle pair type hand that he's going to now be folding. Which would make the logical exploit against that player to only be check race bluffing if we thought the majority of his range was middle pair hands. Uh, you, you mean three bet shoving, bluffing? Yeah, three bet. Yeah, three bet shoving as a bluff. Okay. Uh, do you think he ever shows up here with like, you know, sets? I don't. I don't see him having any two pair hands given the description of his pre flat behavior. So could he ever be holding? ace queen or sets and just be check raising for value i mean anything's possible right um yes he could i think but i think there's a lot more that could be in his range you know than just that well definitely i mean i definitely think that based on your prior reads we should definitely be including some sort of strange middle pair check raises here but you know when we're making such a huge bluff uh we have to be a little bit concerned about, you know, how prevalent are the sort of monsters mm-hmm. in his range. Because even if, let's say he does this play exclusively with, like, nines through jacks and sets, you know, if we're bluffing, we're happy that he folded the nines through the jacks, but we're we're bluffing at such a high price that when he does call with his sets, you know, we, we've lost right. a, a huge amount, you know, net on this bluff right if we're worried about if we're worried about a lot of sets then i think that it makes bluffing for this sizing a lot less attractive which was part of why you know the stack sizes in the first place made me a little bit concerned about bluffing Mm -hmm. Uh, but if if we're confident that he's not going to take this line with those hands uh but he will fold the middle pair hands then bluffing here all of a sudden becomes like you know just the best play by far. Right. Yeah, I'm curious. Uh, you know, Jack or I 
uh, when the podcast comes out, Trisha, we'll be doing kind of what we call like our podcast math um, <laughs> or sorry, podcast breakdown segment mm-hmm. uh, where we kind of do an in-depth analysis using some software like Poker Stove or Poker Cruncher to figure out, you know, make, make a few more concrete assumptions about both of your ranges and then figure out, you know, what was the best play kind of exactly with your entire yeah. range based on those assumptions. And I wouldn't be surprised if like using roughly these type of assumptions, we could find that like any, it, it will be massively plus EV to bet three bet shove all of like your bluffs in your range that you get to in this spot. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it just, it just really depends on what that range looks like. If he's opening seven, eight suited, eight, nine suited, putting that as a check raise and then only check raising sets half the time. My instinct is that this three bet bluff is going to be profitable with, you know, most of our range or at least most of our potential bluffing range. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to say, but kind of in game, I think at least all of my more obvious bluffs, like any type of gut shot or any flush draw, I think this is a mandatory, mandatory jam. Oh, well, I'm glad you said that because that that, <laughs> that was actually what I was thinking when I was in the moment and obviously not having uh, the benefit of being able to, you know, get out my poker stove or whatever right there at the table. But just based off of work that I had done off the table, I was, you know, in that spot. Um, my hand, if you, are you ready for the reveal? Yes. Or, okay. <laughs> Let's I, do it. I had the Jack 10 of clubs. So I had the, you know, gut shot plus the flush draw. And do you want to hear my opponent's hand? He did ultimately call my all in. Well, hold on. I think your hand is actually really, really interesting. And so I think we should talk about it. Okay. So your hand is interesting because there, there are aspects of it that make the bluff a lot better. And there are aspects of it that make the bluff a lot worse. Yep. And I can uh, see that too, honestly, but I'm interested to hear what you say. Well, why is it better? It basically just because you have a lot of equity when mm-hmm. called. I mean, when you're, when you're called, I mean, unless you get called by the nut flush draw, which is kind of a d- disaster, then, you know, you have uh, 12 outs. So you're, you're basically even equity. Uh, so, you know, anytime your opponent folds, it's great. And anytime they call with a hand like, you know, ace queen, you're basically even equity. So you're sort of indifferent. You're not indifferent, but you're not upset to be called. Now, when you get called by sets, you have a little bit worse than even equity. The The issue here is that while this hand has really good equity when called, you're blocking a lot of the hands that you wanted to fold out. I think the net of that is that you know, it's a better candidate to to bluff than, you know, a hand like Jack-10 of diamonds. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, well, much better than Jack-10 of diamonds. But I I would almost prefer this play with a, the nut flush draw uh, because even though you have slightly less equity when you get called by, like, a set here, you're never getting called by a draw that has you beat and you're not blocking the hands that have you beat that you're expecting to fold like jacks and tens mm-hmm. and also potentially queen jack and queen 10. It, yeah. And I think those are important points to like when we're 
facing a more balanced opponent, someone who isn't just really exploitably check-raising with a really wide range, including many weak-made hands. But I think the important point is that these are all nuances that really don't come into play in this specific hand just because, you know, it's going to be correct to three-bet bluff with such a wide range against someone who is check-raising a lot of weak-made hands they're likely to fold. And even if, you know, you reveal, Trisha, that he, like, Tink called you with middle pair, I think given the information we had in-game, it's a pretty safe assumption to think that he's going to fold these hands most of the time. So I, I think I think this is a slam-dunk three-bet shove with Jack-10 of diamonds as well as Jack-10 of, uh, uh, Jack of clubs. And so he called me, if we want to get the drum roll, he called me with, he had nines in the hole. He had nine of spades, nine of clubs. So you're a favorite here. I'm a favorite. I'm a 60-40 about. Um, and the king of hearts comes on the turn, which was very nice. And then, the, and then the deuce of spades came on the river. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I think, I mean... One, you should feel good about the bluff, and two, you got, you got him to put it in not as a favorite. So, right, you know, one way to think about it is, is he he binked. <laughs> you know, um, the yeah. other thing that I thought was really interesting though is like the thing of it was when he tanked there, it's like, okay, well, obviously he did not have a solid plan for what he was going to do if he was hit with that particular move. And so I always like to try and think from all angles. So if I get in that spot where let's say I was in his spot, then I need to already be thinking, well, what would I react? You know, how would I react if someone did that to me? And so I thought that was kind of interesting that it was, you know, a tank call. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is kind of an interesting spot just because like, just like really no thinking player would check raise nines here, you know? <laughs> so it's kind of hard to like put your put yourself in those shoes you know it's like mm-hmm. how do we adjust like i think it's really important when you're playing live poker especially when you're trying to take these really exploitative lines to get inside your opponent's heads if as much as possible but this kind of i think shows sometimes the futility of that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah i mean i think we can sort of i'm gonna place sort of a narrative inside of our opponent's head which I'm sort of pulling out of thin air, but it seems plausible to me. So let's, here it goes. Let's imagine, so our opponent must be thinking along the lines of, if I bet and I get called, I don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. If I check and get bet into, and I call, then I won't know what to do on the turn. If I check, I don't want to fold. So since I already decided I don't like these other things, I'm going to check raise because probably she'll fold. It's it's very flawed thinking. No, I like that. I like that. And then she goes all in, and you're like, "Oh shit, I might have the best <laughs> hand." Uh, I call. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think uh, the, actually the narrative that you just went through, I think, is very much the narrative that was going through his mind. I think that you hit it like the nail on the head exactly. If I had to guess. Mm-hmm. Let's step aside from this hand and address some of our listeners who probably, you know, maybe not in ex- this exact situation, but in other situations, maybe find themselves going through a similar thought process where you you have a you have a set of decisions, you go through them, you don't like them, so you choose the last one without really really thinking about it, or without maybe just thinking about the fact that 
there's no great decision. And that happens when you have... So here, when this player opens under the gun plus one at a nine-handed table, especially when you know he's not an extremely loose pre- pre-flop player and he's playing up in stakes, nines is probably kind of close to the bottom of you know his range. Not close to the bottom per se, but he might not be opening on pocket pairs. And on this particular flop, uh, nines has you know, not great equity and you have a lot of better hands. So you're not expecting to necessarily make a lot of money at this point. I would advocate for checking and calling your one or two streets based on your opponent. Uh, just because the only way you're going to be able to get more money with a hand like this is you know, by either having your opponent bluff into you or by having your opponent's action let you determine that you can profitably value bet. I think here on the flop, you will not be able to profitably value bet a hand like nines out of position. Um, it, probably not in position either, but I think definitely not out of position. So you have to go through all your decisions, try and think about you know, what are the relative value of those decisions, and not just decide that you don't like certain decisions so you're going to take the alternative without thinking about how it stacks up. And then I guess one last point on that topic is that it's okay you know, to have a bad flop for your hand and, and realize that you're out of position and you don't have a very strong hand and you're not likely to make very much money. You don't have to try and win every pot. That's a very solid point. Uh, I play a lot of tournaments, and so I think this comes up a lot in tournaments where it's like, yeah, I guess what? That uh, flop is terrible for me, and it's not likely to get any better. And even though I wish it was different, especially in a tournament where I can't just reload, I have to accept reality. And obviously most players don't, which is good for us. If, well, that's that's one reason why I can stay in business doing mindset work because most people don't like to accept reality. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so this is kind of a natural, I think, transition to kind of the interview part of the the podcast. So, but before we kind of get into it, Trisha, I just wanted to ask you a little bit more about your your mindset work, and this would be an optimal time to plug. Uh, anything you'd like to plug? Well, I appreciate uh, the opportunity. I Most people may or may not know that I've done two books with Jonathan Little, Positive Poker, and then the most recent one, uh, Peak Poker Performance, which just came out. Uh, well, it released during the World Series, um, so it hasn't been that long. And then i just getting a new website started called peakpokermindset.com, where if your listeners want to come on over, they can actually get a free mini course, if you will, that has lessons that will teach you how to design and develop a masterpiece year, which I think will be um, very good for people since we're kind of coming into the end of this year and the beginning of next. Sounds great. Awesome. I'll expect you both to be signing up right away. <laughs> By the time this podcast released, we probably already signed up. <laughs> awesome. 